of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wonderful thing, wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Father, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 72 as we've been going throughout the Psalms. We've looked at Psalms 1 and 2 and 6 so far. This is a psalm, as Japheth said, about Israel's king. The psalm shows what Israel's king was supposed to be like and what the result of the righteous reign of God's anointed ruler would look like and to be like for God's people. But before we jump into the psalm, I want to talk about three things very briefly that I think are, are helpful to orient us to not only this psalm, but also the book of Psalms. First, the most common feature of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. So when you're reading the Psalms or even the book of Proverbs or places in Job or really anywhere where it's poetic in nature, you're going to see this idea of parallelism pop up all over the place. This can occur in a couple of different ways, actually in a few different ways, but there are two main types of Hebrew parallelism. One is called synonymous parallelism. This is where two lines match the idea of each other. Another type of parallelism is antithetical parallelism. This is where two ideas will contrast each other in lines that are next to each other. We see synonymous parallelism a lot in this passage. So look at Psalm 72.1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. 
king and royal son are parallel with each other. Justice and righteousness are parallel with one another. So what those two things are doing is those two lines are working together as one to really reinforce this big idea of justice and righteousness are supposed to be the kings. So I just want to bring that up so that when you're reading Hebrew poetry in the Psalms or in Job or in the prophets or anywhere where there's poetry in the Old Testament, you'll see those ideas and you'll think, wow, look, that's really being reinforced there. And we're going to see that in our, in our texts today. You can see it in actually multiple passages there. So second, I want to talk about the structure of the book of Psalms in just a couple of sentences. So this is not an exhaustive treatment. Josh talked about this when he was talking about Psalm 1 a little bit. The book of Psalms is laid out in five books. Psalm 72 ends book number two. See that last verse there? The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And for mine, I have to flip the page. Yours might just be right underneath it. It says book three. So this is the second scroll or the second book. And this is the last psalm within this book. In general, it is clear that many of the psalms, like this one, reflect on what it looks like when the king himself is reflecting on the law of God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, there's this law for the king. And at the end of that passage, it talks about what the king is supposed to do. And really, one of the main responsibilities of the king is that he is supposed to meditate on God's law day and night, and he's supposed to write a copy of that law. That sounds kind of familiar. There's a lot of Psalm 1-ish type of language there. But when we see the king doing that, we get psalms like Psalm 1 and 2 and 6 and 72. The king is reflecting on God's law. So we see that being presented in our text today, I think. So end of the second book. The third thing I want to talk about just very briefly is that Psalm 72 is likely either a psalm of Solomon written by him or it is a psalm of David about or to Solomon, a prayer for Solomon. So again, in verse 20 there, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. I think that this is, a, this is probably most likely a prayer from David for Solomon as Solomon is taking over the throne. A lot of people think that this also was probably used each time a king in Israel may have, may have taken the throne. So an enthronement psalm. That's a guess. We don't know whether that is the case or not. So those are the three big ideas I want you to kind of have in your head overall as we approach poetry, as we approach the book of Psalms, and then as we approach this psalm in particular. So that leads us to our big idea of the psalm. Japheth already shared this, but the big idea of this psalm is that God's anointed king rules with justice and righteousness by saving the oppressed whom he loves. This results in blessing and tribute to the king from the nations, and it results in the glory being given to God. I know that's not very succinct, but I had 20 verses, so... It's going to be a little bit longer depending on the length of the text. So, so I think that that's what this psalm is trying to get at. It's trying to show that God's anointed king rules with justice and righteousness. In doing that, he saves his oppressed people because he loves them, because he cares for them. This results in them blessing and tribute from God's people and the nations, and it ultimately brings glory to God. Hopefully you can see that in all of these texts. And I'll show that hopefully within the the text today. So that's the big point of the text. 
But the big point of my sermon, my application for the sermon is going to be this. Jesus Christ, who is God's anointed king, rules with justice and righteousness by saving the oppressed. It is the duty of his people and the nations to serve him, which brings glory to God. You can see how those two ideas are parallel. This is, I think, the main point of Psalm 72. But the application is about Jesus because he is this great king who the psalm talks about. He is the one whom this psalm is ultimately about. All right, with that, let's jump into our text. I have four points. And as you start to get worried when I'm in point number one, it's by far the longest. So, so don't think, oh no, he's got four points that are as equally long and they're, we're going to be here till three o'clock. No, the first one's the longest. Don't worry, I know I won't be as short as Mark was last week, but my psalm's twice as long, so I've got twice as much time. I'm only kind of joking there. So I think that this psalm can naturally be split up into four different pieces. The first one that we're going to look at is 72 verses 1 through 7. And I think if we're just going to sum up this section, it's this. If the king's reign is just and righteous, then the people will prosper. So if the king and his reign is just and righteous, then his people will will prosper. So the psalm says this, it's of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to your royal to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity. The word there is actually shalom, peace. Let your let the mountains bear peace or prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. So this, this section kind of unfolds in two different parts. Verses 1 through 4, which describe the king and his reign or rule. And then verses 5 through 7, which begins a prayer for the king, which kind of goes on and off throughout the rest of the psalm itself. So in verses 1 through 4, the king is supposed to rule with justice and righteousness. This kind of rule comes from God This is how God rules and reigns. And so the king is supposed to mirror or image that same kind of rule and reign in his life that God images and and rules and reigns with. A just and righteous rule. Well, we we can kind of become too familiar with these $5 church words, can't we? So what do justice and righteousness mean? If you had to define them, just think in your mind, what do they mean? What do these things look like? So justice is a legal term that is most commonly used to denote basically the the correct deciding of disputes. In Psalm 1-5, you've got a picture of this where the wicked cannot stand in the judgment. Same word, actually, in, in the justice, in the judgment. It's the same word as is found in our psalm today. We're going to look at this a little bit more here in just a second. And then righteousness, 
actually just means to be just or to do what is lawful and right. On a larger biblical theological scheme, right, so, so the, the text that we read out of Romans, and I'll allude to another one in Romans, it's to have a right standing before God, a legal declaration of right standing before God. But in a generic context like this, it's, it's to actually be just or to do what is right and lawful. So the king is actually supposed to be the one who obeys the law. So we see these ideas being brought together a lot in scripture. It's called a word pair. This word pair is used over and over and over again. I'm only going to give you a very small sample of this word pair. So I'm about to go into biblical studies mode a little bit. I apologize. Pay attention when I do this. But these ideas, when used together, are found throughout scripture. So in Genesis 18, 19, Abraham is told that he is supposed to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness. So justice and righteousness are referred to as the way of God, the way of the Lord. In 1 Kings 10, 9, Sheba, the queen of Sheba comes and she says to Solomon that the Lord has blessed him because Solomon's rule. And she says that because he rules with justice and righteousness, the nations come in and see that. You see that in the psalm that Crystal just read. In Psalm 89, 14 and 97, 2, those two psalms, it says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's ruling throne. Justice and righteousness are the foundation on which God rules. Psalm 99.4 says that the Lord is the king who in his might has established equity by loving justice and righteousness. God loves justice and righteousness is what that psalm says. Psalm 103.6 says that the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Very similar to our text today. Proverbs 1.3, when Solomon is writing this and he's talking about the purpose of the book of Proverbs, he says that the book is written, one of the reasons why the book of Proverbs is written, is to receive instruction in wise dealing. Solomon's writing this to his son who's going to become king so that he can receive instruction in wise dealing. And then he describes wise dealing as this. Righteousness, justice, and equity in Proverbs 1.3. Proverbs 21.3 says that doing righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. Isaiah 1.7 says that God will redeem Zion, that is Jerusalem, through justice and righteousness. This term, justice and righteousness, this word pair... It's also used to describe the messianic kingdom. So when the prophets are describing God's Messiah coming, the two most frequent words that describe Messiah are justice and righteousness. So Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government, right? You know, the, the government will be upon his shoulders, right? He will be the prince of peace. It's when it's talking about his government, it describes it as justice and righteousness, Isaiah does this also in 16.5, 28.17, and 32.1. And that's actually just a handful in the book of Isaiah. He actually uses it a lot more than that. Jeremiah 23.5 says that the days are coming when God will raise up a righteous branch of David who will do justice and righteousness. And then these same ideas are repeated throughout Jeremiah, particularly in chapter 33. Hosea 
says that God is going to betroth himself to his people in justice and in righteousness through the Davidic king. I have only given you the tip of the iceberg of these verses being paired together. It was a lot. I know you probably didn't even catch all of those. My point is, these are huge ideas. And when we're thinking about God's rule and reign, two words come to mind. There's more words, but two words are at the top. That is justice and righteousness. And these ideas climax at the cross. If we were to read Romans 3, it talks about how the righteousness of God has been revealed against the ungodly and that God's righteous judgment and justice have been met on the cross of Christ. So justice and righteousness are not only Old Testament ideas, but they are ideas that meet with the work of Christ on the cross at their most full. So what does ruling and justice and righteousness look like? Well, hopefully you've already got an idea of it from all of those texts that I just read. But in Psalm 72, it says that it looks like this. It looks like ruling the people rightly, justly. It looks like defending the poor. It looks like delivering the needy. And it looks like crushing the oppressor. That's what God's king does. That's what God does. Then there is also a prayer for the king. So those are the first four verses. And then the five through seven, there's a prayer for the king. These can also be translated in the future like this is what the king is supposed to do. This is what the king, when, is, when he's godly, will do. But I think it's, 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 it's this prayer uh, like feeling that, that we have when we read these verses. Verse 5 can actually be read in two ways. So if you look at verse 5 in your Bible, there's probably a footnote or an asterisk or something along there. And it leads you to the bottom of the page. And it says, that, so the text as, as we read it is, is read this way. May he, the king, or sorry, may they fear while the sun endures. And that's clearly the, those who are oppressive. May they fear, right? May they fear the king and God while the sun endures. Another possible reading of this text could be, may he, that is the king, endure as long as the sun. Very minor difference in the, the Hebrew between those two. Either one of them is a possibility. Verse 5 Uh, I think that the may he, that is the king, endure as long as the sun might be the more accurate reading, which is not the one found in the the, the font of your ESV. The reason why I think that is because it matches verse 17. Verse 17 says the same thing. I'll come back to that uh, in verse 17. But verses 5 through 7 are descriptions of what the king is supposed to, to, to look like. It's this aspirational prayer for who their leader will be, that he will endure throughout all generations, like the sun, that he will be like rain on mown grass. He is supposed to be this good and refreshing king. So if I was going to describe God's rule and the rule of God's king, it would be justice and righteousness. These are the words that the text uses over and over again. But the rule of the kings of Israel, as Japhet said, was not like this. There are glimpses of it, to be sure. We see some promising little little specks of history in kings like David, part of Solomon's reign, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Josiah. If you're in Sunday school, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not in Sunday school, come to Sunday school. And I think that often, applicationally, what, what... 
most people or many people might try to do in this psalm is they might try to, to read this and they might try to say, well, because God's king is supposed to rule justly and righteously, then our governmental re- leaders are supposed to rule justly and rightly. And that is true biblically theologically. Right? God tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 that he's supposed to rule and reign with justice and righteousness. I agree with that statement, applicationally, biblically, theologically. But this text is not talking about the rulers of Phoenix or of Arizona or of the United States. Because if it was, verses 8 through 11 get a little bit dicey. Where the, the peoples of the nation are coming and paying tribute and serving them, Right? So, biblically, theologically, yes, every leader is supposed to lead with justice and righteousness without exception. Absolutely true. But this text is about God's appointed king. God's appointed ruler, whom the nations will serve. This text is talking about the Israelite king within the old covenant theocracy in its immediate context. But theologically, this text is talking about God's anointed king who rules over God's anointed people. This text is a text about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is the king who rules over God's kingdom. This text is about Christ and his blood-bought people, the church. Christ rules and reigns with justice and righteousness. He rules over the poor and the lowly and the oppressed. And if you don't think... And if you don't think that that you are poor or lowly or oppressed, then I think you think too highly of yourself. Think of Paul's charge in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he's telling the, the Corinthian Christians to consider their calling. He says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Also think about the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the mighty and the powerful, right? No. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God calls that which is not to shame that which is. And Christ our king is the only king who exemplifies this description of ruling in justice and righteousness for the poor and for the needy and for the oppressed. He rules over his people. He brings peace. He defends the poor. Think about his ministry. He delivers the children of the needy, as this text says, and he crushes the oppressor. Satan, sin, death. He endures throughout all generations. He is refreshing like rain that falls on mown grass. Grass is this green stuff that grows from the ground. We may not know what that is because we're in Phoenix, right? There's a patch of it out there, a very small patch. But he's refreshing to his people. Have you ever been under leadership that was not refreshing? 
Christ's leadership is refreshing. His burden is light and his yoke is easy. Under his reign, the righteous flourish and peace abounds. We need to be like our king, following his example. We need to humble ourselves and love God and love neighbor more than we love ourselves. If your first inclination in life is always self-love and always self-preservation, then you are following the pattern of this world. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Love God and love others fiercely. These are the two great commands of our great king. Love God and love others. I'm guessing that if you are a believer, you've felt conviction on what this is supposed to look like in your life. I have. The Spirit has stirred it in me. What should this look like? This week, make it a point to begin every day with this prayer. God, how can I live a life that is characterized by justice and righteousness? God, how can I love you and love others more today? God, what are you calling me to do here and now? When was the last time you asked that? When was the last time that you prayed that? But I don't want to think of this text simply individually. I want to think about this text as a community of believers in the local church. So, God, help this church. This should be our prayer as a church. God, help this church who is under the just and righteous reign of Jesus to love you and love others more today. Help us to see the calling that you have placed on us to be salt and light and to spread your gospel to the nations who are poor and needy of it. The poor and needy are going to come up again later in a couple of verses, so I'm going to hit on that there a little bit more. But this is the context. This, this, this call to the nations and to the peoples is the context of this next part of the, the text that we're in. So look at 72, 8 through 11. Again, it, the prayer is continued here. It talks about what the king is supposed to be like, what his rule and reign should look like. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall before him All nations serve him. You see a lot of parallelism in that passage, hopefully. So what is the the reign of this king supposed to look like? Well, from sea to sea. When the king rules with righteousness and justice, he will have dominion over God's creation. The king is supposed to image God. In the way that the original, in the, the way that in the original created order, Adam and Eve did. These, this language is very, very creational. But there's also language, not only from Genesis one and Genesis two, but there's language from Genesis three in here. Do you see that? Where it says that may his enemies lick the dust. That's an image of 
the serpent eating the dust of the ground, so the enemies of God's anointed king will eat or lick the dust. So this this text is a text of creation and of new creation when the fall is overturned. When the king is ruling rightly, guess what? It looks like creation. Peace, prosperity, justice, righteousness. Everything looks good. There is rain on the mown ground. It's a beautiful picture of the way that things are supposed to be. God's king rules over even the remotest islands and the smallest cities in the desert, right? So you see that, right? May may you go to the desert from sea to shining sea to Tarshish, which is across the sea and to the coastlands. And what are those, those people supposed to do? They're supposed to bring him tribute. They're supposed to bring him the treasures of the earth. This is This is what is due to God's anointed ruling king. Everything is under his rules. And his subjects from the nations bring tribute to him and serve him. This is what Solomon's reign looks like for a tiny period. And again, if you're in Sunday school class, this is what the reigns of the good kings look like. Every time we're going through Chronicles, every time there's a good king, what happens? The nations stream in and they bring the king gifts. This is just a foretaste of the great and beautiful reign of Jesus Christ and what it will ultimately look like at his coming. So when God's king, when God's anointed ruler rules rightly, we see a picture of the way that things are supposed to be. A picture of creation where the curse and the fall is overturned and things are made right again. It's a world that we don't really experience in its fullness or in totality today. We've never sat under leadership so good that we can say it was creational and an overturning of the fall. If you've ever had a job like that, please talk to me later and we can, I can figure out where you work. It's never happened, right? We see this rule and reign though in Christ even now, if but, but a little bit. It's here for God's people but it will be fully realized upon his return. So think about how it's already here and think about the ministry of Christ in the gospels where he's making the blind see and the lame walk and he's healing and he's forgiving sin and bringing about right relationship with God. This is a way that the world not only was supposed to be, but is supposed to be under God's king. It shows the nations bringing gifts and falling before him and serving him. First, let me say that every Christian's response to this text should be to do this. We should fall before Christ. We should serve Christ and worship him because he is the king. We serve and worship him alone. There is no other. But secondly, every person is called from every nation to honor Christ in their service, in their worship. The gift that we are called to bring, all of us, every person is our very self. We are to to fall before our king with humility and serve him with every, every fiber and the very core of our being, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does this look like? 
If you know Christ, it means living daily with a focus on him and his kingdom and not your own. It looks like dying to yourself every moment. If you're not a believer, what does this look like? It looks like repenting, turning to Christ in faith, forsaking the world's ways, and seeking God's kingdom and God's just and righteous king, Jesus Christ, above all things. What ways have you focused on your own kingdom more than God's kingdom? What ways can you seek God's kingdom and Christ's rule in your life? Let those haunt you this week because he alone is worthy of our worship and praise. The next section of the psalm is verses 12 through 14. It's going to describe what the king does. It's going to be somewhat similar to what we saw in verses 1 through 7. It says, For he, that is the king, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. That word pity is like, it's used with the eye a lot. Like either the eye has pity or the eye does not have pity. So it's compassion. It's like a a picture of like an eye crying. So he has pity on the needy, on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. The ideas and content here, as I said, are already found in verses 1 through 7, but they're just re-emphasized here. Alan Ross says that the psalm changes a little bit here from, from that of petition and prayer actually to a description. This is who the king is. This is who the king is supposed to be. And note the parallelism and the heaping on of synonyms, not synonyms, synonyms. Just and righteous, right? He delivers, he helps, he pities, he saves, he redeems the poor and the needy. Have you ever tried to encourage someone? What do you do? You heap on sin. God is totally, really, awesomely with you, right? Trying to get that point across. The psalmist is trying to show what God does for his people. Again, we must understand that God calls the poor and the needy. If we don't, then we think too highly of ourselves. The poor and the needy in this text are God's people whom he calls. Note in verse 12, these are the ones who call on him. I want to make a point clear here. People are not God's people simply because they are poor or needy according to worldly standards. But God does call the poor and the needy, to be his people. God's people must recognize God's appointed king, Christ, to be his people. And he, unlike the kings and the rulers of this world, calls and loves the lowly. He calls those who are poor and those who are oppressed and those who are needy to be in his family and to be his children. This is not the kings of the world and what they do, is it? The kings of the world surround themselves with lavish company and high influence. Our king surrounds himself and rules over a humble 
people who only find themselves in his company because he called us. This is how the kings of the world, this is not how the kings of the world operate. Our king saves and redeems the lives of the poor. This is a description of the lowly in Israelite society. God is the helper and redeemer of them. The king is supposed to act likewise, and God's people should image him in doing this as well. How are you caring for the poor and the needy? You cannot save and redeem them as God and God's king can, but are you showing them the love of the king? Look to your right. Look to your left. Is there someone here today that you can show the love of the king to? Are you acting justly and rightly towards others? And if we're being honest, that's uncomfortable to ask, isn't it? What would our world look like if Christians looked more like our King Jesus? What would this world look like if Christians cared more about others in a Philippians 2 way, like Toby mentioned, than they do about themselves? What would it look like if I did that? What would it look like if you did that? What would your family look like if you imaged that to them? What would TBC look like? What would your job look like? What would your neighborhood look like? God's appointed king does all of these things in this passage. He delivers. He helps. He pities, has compassion on. He saves and he redeems because his needy people are precious to him. I think that's something that we probably all need to hear today. Right now, if you are feeling lowly, if you are needy, God is your help. If you are feeling oppressed, if you are oppressed, God is your redeemer. Christ is your savior. And God's people, the church, are here for you. The psalm then transitions and looks at that just rule of the king and what then is due to the king and how that due is ultimately given to God. So verses 15 through 19, when the king rules justly, he is blessed and God gets all the glory. I should probably say, but God gets all the glory. The king is blessed, but God gets all the glory. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. That tribute from the nations, that idea is still in there. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Parallelism. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. That creational language again, right? It's creation regained. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Same ideas as in verse 5. 
May people be blessed in him. See, the king is a conduit of blessing from God to the people. May the people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. But in the end, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Verse 15 returns us back to the prayer. When the king is just and righteous, praise and blessing is due to him. The praise and blessing is this. May may he live long. May tribute come to him. May prayers and blessings be, be made for him. And may creation basically act and react accordingly. Since when the king rules justly, it is that picture of creation. The people and the nations will bless him and call him blessed. But in the end, God is the blessed one because he is the one who is working all these things out in the king. And the king is merely and simply imaging him. When the king acts in accordance with justice and righteousness, then he is blessed. Just like the righteous person of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of all the sinners and scoffers, right? But what does he do? He meditates on God's law day and night. So that's what the king is when he acts justly and lawfully. When the king patterns his rule off of God, then the nations will ultimately respond with tribute and service and worship. The exact opposite of what we saw in Psalm 2, where the Psalms were meditating in vain, where they were plotting against God's king, who God had installed on Zion, his holy hill. So when God's king acts accordingly, the nations stream to him instead of plotting against him. When the king exercises the creational dominion that he is supposed to, imaging God, it gives a pattern of restored creation. The lamentation of Psalm 6 is gone because God removes grief and weeping. He removes workers of evil and he hears the prayers of his lowly people. This psalm has all of those ideas in it that we've seen so far. And in the end, we look at it and we are astounded and we say, blessed be our God who has given us the perfect king who does all of these things. Even now, come Lord Jesus. Right now we live under the rule and reign of this king. Right now, we look forward to the day when every knee will bow. And every tongue confess from every nation that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray.